This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. Well, here we are winding up yet another wonderful season of gardening and helping the birds in our backyards. It has been a lot of fun watching hundreds of birds come through our property in the last several weeks while migrating. They are stopping over to snack on apples, berries, seeds, flower petals, and insects as they make their way south to warmer climates for the winter. I think we've got an interesting show for you today. Today, we'll be talking with Danielle Dioria about the Heron Observation Network in the state of Maine. Danielle is doing great work with the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife in Maine to protect herons and their rookeries. And now I'd like to welcome Danielle Dioria. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, this is wonderful. I love herons, and I don't think we've covered herons on the show for close to two years now. So it's great to be talking about them again. Could you uh, tell our listening audience all about yourself, the job you have, and the role that you play? And then we'll talk about the network. Sure. So I'm a wildlife biologist for the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. And I'm a species specialist, which basically means I focus my time on certain species. All the species I work with are water birds. So great blue herons are one of those species, as well as all the long-legged waders that we have here in Maine, secretive marsh birds, black terns, and loons primarily are what I focus my time on. And I try to understand statewide populations of all those species and then where they might need help. So we focus on habitat conservation, understanding where they are, protecting those sites, and then also trying to figure out are their populations stable or increasing or decreasing? Okay, now I have to ask, how does a young person work their way to the point where you're at now? I mean, Because I have a lot of young listeners who are very interested in getting involved in helping wildlife. Did you study wildlife biology in college? Yeah, I first went to a state school in New York. That's where I'm from originally. And I got a bachelor's degree of science in biology knowing that I would likely have to get a master's degree. So I then worked seasonally for a couple of years for places like the National Forest Service and the National Wildlife Refuge System. And then I went back to school and got my master's degree in wildlife science. That was my education path. And then, you know, doing a lot of seasonal jobs where you kind of do a lot of field work and then gaining all that experience. But then after my master's degree, really kind of had the skills that I needed to join the permanent workforce. And now why were you drawn to water birds? What is it about water birds that you liked? Well, I actually started out, I initially wanted to be a marine biologist when I was young, 
But being in Western New York, there's not a lot of marine biology opportunities. So I kind of got on the bird kick because I had a professor at my school that was really into birds and I helped him out in the lab and took field ornithology and all that. So birds were kind of my thing at first. It didn't really matter to me what kinds of birds. In fact, my master's degree was studying Chihuahuan ravens in New Mexico. So pretty different than herons. But having that experience with a variety of different birds gave me the experience I needed for this position. And the the need here was somebody to focus on water birds. And since then, I can't imagine working with anything else. So now could you talk about your program and, and how it all started? Yeah. So one of the things that we're tasked with as the state agency, the state wildlife agency, is to understand the population status of pretty much any species that resides in Maine. And so we go through these periodic reviews every few years to see if there's any species that warrant listing as endangered or threatened. And if not that, maybe potentially special concern, which is kind of like the watch list. And great blue herons came up back in 2007 because we had a lot of information from some of our aerial surveys on the coast of Maine that showed a pretty significant decline between the 80s and 90s, but we didn't have any recent information. And then we also hadn't updated information at our inland colonies. So there was kind of this big question mark as to what's going on with great blue herons in Maine? Are they really declining? We need to look into that. So like I said, they were designated as a species of special concern in 2007. And I actually came into my position in 2008 and started to look at, you know, what can we do for this species? What do we need to find out? What do we need to determine? And really, it was kind of getting some additional baseline information. So understanding all of the colonies that we had in our database from the past that hadn't been visited in a while, we wanted to visit all of those and see if they were active, but also find out if there's any additional colonies that we hadn't known about. So we did a lot of aerial survey for in order to kind of create that baseline information. But we also wanted to monitor those sites over time. And Maine is a pretty large state and has a lot of potential habitat for great blue herons to nest because they pretty much nest in trees. It can be live, dead, or dying trees. So with a state that's almost 95% forested, there's a lot of nooks and crannies they could be hiding. I decided I needed some help. I don't have any staff that can really help me take on this role of monitoring all these sites throughout the state. So that's where we called on some volunteers and created the Heron Observation Network of Maine, which is a volunteer Adopt-A-Colony program where volunteers will sign up to monitor a site. They go out at least once during the nesting season to report back how many nests are in a colony, how many are being used by the herons, how many aren't. And then they can also let us know if the young reach fledging age. Now, for our listening audience, could you perhaps explain what does a heron nesting colony look like? Because I, <laughs> I've walked into one before. Um, yeah, it's a great question. It is so eerie <laughs> to walk into this. You look up and you see this circle of great blue herons in nests and they're all just kind of, you know, 
staring back at you. (laughs) Yeah. So herons choose to nest in groups. So we call the grouping of their nest a colony. They nest in trees primarily. And in Maine, heron colonies can be in snags in the middle of like a beaver flowage, or they could be in an upland stand of white pines, or they could be on one of our islands in some live spruce trees. So there's kind of a lot of different settings. But when you see their nests, our most common habitat is the beaver flowage setting where where we have nests in snags. So they're pretty visible from the wetland edge. And so when you see the nests, sometimes there's multiple nests in one tree. But, you know, we do have some sites that are up to like 40 pairs. For Maine standards, that's kind of a relatively large colony. In other places, they do nest in larger colonies with more nesting pairs in one site. But when you go there, you can see birds coming and going. And you know how herons are. They're kind of, many people kind of associate them with a dinosaur. They're very prehistoric looking and they're very graceful. Sometimes they can be noisy when they're squawking at each other. And the young can be very noisy when they're begging. So tell me, why do they do that? Why do they gather around a water source and nest up high? Yeah, so, well, nesting in a colony gives them, like, added protection from each other. So it's more eyes out looking for predators and other dangers and threats, and they can alert each other. So that's one of the benefits of nesting in a group. They do like to nest near water. One reason is, you know, just they feed in the water, so they're wading birds. So they've got those long legs that allows them to go into relatively shallow water, you know, six inches to maybe a foot at times, and go after things like fish and amphibians and crayfish and that kind of stuff. So being near a food source during nesting can save energy as far as how far they have to fly to their foraging sites. But they also, especially in the beaver flowage situations where the nesting trees are in standing water, they're standing in the water, so they're surrounded by water at the base, that can deter predators. So things like raccoons or mink that might climb the trees, they'll be a little more deterred to get out to those nesting trees if there's water at the base of them, you know, to have to swim out and then climb up and go after eggs or nestlings. And it's just a little less less of a threat for the herons if they have water that's kind of at the base of their nest trees. Right. Also, they like it quiet, don't they? This is why they choose these remote areas. You're not going to find a heron rookery in uh, downtown Portland. No, typically not. Although there are some sites that herons have nested relatively close to development where people can sometimes walk on a sidewalk right near a colony. I think there's a good example in Vancouver of a a large colony that's right in town, kind of near some parks, but, you know, there's a lot of visitors and they're walking just right below some of the nest sites. So they do range with how much they tolerate people and certain what we would consider types of disturbance. So could you talk now about the network? So your average citizen can get involved in helping you, correct? Yeah, we're always looking for more people to help. It all depends on if we have a colony available for somebody to adopt, because we usually only have one person who adopts each site for a season. But pretty much anybody can get involved as long as they have an interest, they have a pair of binoculars. That's 
usually needed. Sometimes having a spotting scope is great as well. But really just having a pair of binoculars and the, and the willingness to get out to a site at least once a year. We have a data sheet that they would fill out telling us the date and everything and what they're seeing. If there's any disturbances, maybe by bald eagles or if they're nesting near ospreys, we want to know about that. And so they report all that back. We have a citizen science portal that they can enter all that information into. And then we collate that at the end of the season to see how many nesting pairs we had each year and kind of formulating a trend as far as the population goes. So anybody who's interested in getting involved, they would just contact me. We always have some sites that need monitors and they just go out at least once during the nesting season, which tends to be May through July. They can go multiple times. They can go every couple of weeks to kind of track nests and how productive they are. And they report all of that back to me. What does a typical trip out to monitor a nest look like? Are they out there counting how many heron chicks there are in the nests or? Yes. So the first bit of data is just how many nests are there. Sometimes colonies aren't active, meaning there's no birds actually using the nests. The nests sometimes persist year after year because they're just these large stick nests. They don't always get blown out of the trees during the winter. So remnant nests will remain year after year, even if birds aren't using them. So people first count how many nests, then how many of those nests are active. So how many are being used by great blue herons as a nest that year? And then they can tell us, depending on the time of year, so when the birds are incubating, obviously they can't see any young yet, but they can tell us if they're incubating at their nest or if they have young. They can also let us know how many young they count in each nest. And that can help if they're gonna go back a week or two later and a couple of times during the season, we can get a nice idea of how productive the birds are and if they're successful. So all of that kind of information is what's collected and written on data sheets and then entered into the portal. And what is the information showing you right now? Are there any trends that you're seeing? Yeah. So since we started this, we started this back in 2009. So this was actually our 14th season in 2022. And we've actually seen a decline at the statewide level. And this is including all the sites that volunteers go to, but also if a volunteer can't get back to a site in a given year and we don't get information for that site, we use the most recent data from say the year before to kind of fill in those gaps. So using kind of all of that data that I mentioned, we're seeing a decline of maybe 44% since we started the program in 2009 at a statewide level. So that's in the number of nesting pairs. And an even bigger decline on our coast, which is about 60% since 2009. So that's a little alarming, but we also fear that we're missing some colonies because each year we do hear of new sites from people from the public or other volunteers or birders that are out on the landscape. So we want to make sure that we're those trends that we're seeing are really accurate and not just a remnant of these are the only colonies we know about, whereas there could be some more out there. 
So now what, in your opinion, is contributing to the decline? Yeah, it's, it's actually a really difficult question to answer. We do have sites that will attempt to nest. The birds will go there, attempt to nest, and then for whatever reason, fail. You know, so they don't pull off young. Their nests get abandoned before young should have fledged. And in some cases, we've put out sound recorders and cameras on those sites. And we've actually heard at night a lot of distress calls from the birds off and on for several days in a row. And our best guess there is that raccoons were causing those failures. And that's just a few sites that we targeted for that project. But it kind of gives us an idea that in some places, raccoons could really be a problem for our herons. We also have a very high bald eagle population. Our bald eagles have done wonderful during recovery. And we have over 700, probably close to 800 pairs of nesting bald eagles in Maine. And we do know bald eagles will predate herons. Both They'll go after the adults and they'll go after the young. And they'll go through a colony and cause a lot of mayhem just by flying through. And some young might jump out of nests and freak out. So on our coastal islands especially, we think the reason that we have such a drastic decline in the coast is that our eagles who are doing very well on our coastal islands and nesting in a lot of places that the herons used to nest, the herons are either moving inland or just dispersing into smaller colonies that maybe are harder for us to detect. It's kind of hard. We don't have a real solid cause or reason for the decline that we're seeing, but we're still kind of gathering information and trying to learn more about the birds and their habits and to see if we get any more clues. Now, what about human interference? Are you seeing any evidence of habitat fragmentation due to development or construction? Yeah, that's always a possible threat. The colonies that are in beaver flowages tend to benefit from the fact that as a wetland in Maine, there are at least a buffer that's required around that wetland between the wetland and development. So it gives a little bit of protection to the birds that are nesting there. But it's more our upland sites that many times don't go detected because the nests are in live upland pines. They're really hard to see unless you're right in the colony, right when the birds are there. And sometimes those trees might get cleared for development without even knowing that the birds were using it as a nesting site. So that's kind of a more common occurrence probably in Maine as far as how development might come into play and disturb nesting birds. Now, is a construction company required to contact you if that does in fact happen? Well, if they find that after they've cut down trees, they see nests, especially during the breeding season, yes, they are supposed to contact us. It rarely happens that we know of, you know, but we have a lot of industrial forest land in Maine. And so there's, you know, lots of forestry operations that go on. And a lot of these things, I think, could go undetected, even by the folks on the ground. But we do have all of our colonies mapped on a GIS database. And so when development occurs in a place, they go through permitting processes that 
query that database. And then if there's a colony nearby, it kind of flags it. And then they know where that site is, what they should do to avoid the site and give it enough room between the development and, and the nesting colony. Well, I would think just that point alone would make your network program invaluable. Yeah, it's really important to know where the sites are in order to protect them and prevent, you know, any negative impacts to them. Right. Now, what would you say to someone who discovers, let's say someone owns, you know, 10, 15 acres with a pond or something, and they notice a heron colony on their property, what should they do? I would first say congratulations, and this is really exciting, and I hope that they appreciate the fact that the herons have chosen to nest there. I would love to have a nesting colony on my property, (laughs) but really, if it's in a wetland, you know, obviously we want to protect the water quality of that wetland, so anything that might affect that, whether it's herbicides or even just the vegetation, so not mowing down to the edge and leaving a nice soft edge of shrubs and any trees that are around that wetland, maintaining those as well. Because a lot of times the visual barrier of trees between the herons and the people is good enough for them. And also just to be aware of when they're there and maybe to not do a lot of activity down at the wetland and not make a lot of noise at certain times of year to try to give them some space and what they need for getting through the nesting season. When there's a colony in a beaver flowage, say, the nests are in the trees in the middle of the wetland, as long as people are on the edge of the wetland and a decent distance from the nearest nest tree, the birds often don't mind your presence. If you were to start to venture out into the wetland, maybe get your kayak in there and start paddling around, that is where they often start to get alarmed and will start flushing and maybe even squawking a little bit and leaving their nests and considering, you know, abandoning a site. So each site is a little unique and you kind of have to read the behavior of the birds to see what they're willing to tolerate. Another thing that we've done, try in an attempt to learn more about great blue herons in Maine, but also to kind of increase the awareness of what we're trying to learn about herons with the public. We began a heron tracking project in 2016, where we work with students and schools and all sorts of volunteers to trap a heron, tag it with a GPS transmitter, and then track it over time to see where it goes while it's in Maine, but then also We've learned a lot about their migration and where they winter by using these transmitters. Now, a lot of people aren't aware that great blue herons actually migrate in the winter. Can you tell me where do they go? Well, we've seen from our birds that they actually go pretty far. So we've tagged somewhere around 12 birds. Not all of them have actually, we've been able to follow their migration, but we've had two go to Florida, which is, you know, somewhat to be expected, right? They need to go somewhere warm where they can forage in water that's not frozen like it is in Maine in the winter. So Florida, we've had one bird go to the Bahamas. We've had a couple birds go to Cuba and a couple birds go to Haiti. So they go pretty far, farther than, you know, most people would think. There's great blue herons that are all up and down the East Coast. So some great blue herons overwinter even in southern Maine. 
and then into Massachusetts and south. But our birds kind of hop over all those birds that are in between and go further south, probably because there's, you know, just not enough habitat to give everybody space. So they have to go just a little further. Right. Now, people can go to Facebook and join your Heron Observation Network page, which actually does show some of the tracking of the migration, correct? The best way to even learn about our tracked birds and to see updates on them is to see our Facebook page because I like to post updates when something new has happened. And we have one bird right now that's tagged in Deer Isle, Maine as of this summer, and we're anxiously awaiting her to migrate, which should be coming up within the next month or so. And we can't wait to see where she goes. That will all get kind of updated on the Facebook page, which is Heron Observation Network of Maine. And can you tell me, are there any other states in New England that are doing similar work? There's not a lot of other states that are paying very close attention to great blue herons. I think Maine is a little unique because of our coastal islands and how much of a coastline we have and kind of the aquatic resources we have, not just coastally, but all of our wetlands. So we do have a lot of potential habitat for herons, whereas some of the other states, you know, there's not as large of a coastline or they just have other priorities a lot of times. So they're not really paying close attention to herons. So I don't know of anybody else who's doing this level of work with great blue herons at the moment. Well, the work you're doing is just so important. I'm glad you're there doing it. (laughs) Thank you. I'd like to thank Danielle Dioria for joining us today. You can find out more about herons and Danielle's work by going to the Heron Observation Network page on Facebook. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.